everybody, and welcome to Walton Biz Talk, where we have casual conversations about professional things. We're a student-run podcast created by the Business Communication Lab in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. My name is Ryan Decker, and our topic this season is sustainability. What it is, why it is important, and what is being done to meet present needs without compromising the needs of future generations. I'm here with Jesse Schneeblen as we kick off our first episode on sustainability. Today we are talking to Dr. Marty Matlock, Executive Director of the Resiliency Center and Professor of Ecological Engineering here at the University of Arkansas, and Eric Bowles, the Director of the Office for Sustainability here at the University of Arkansas. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. You bet. <laughs> this season we're talking about sustainability, uh, just kind of getting as many different perspectives on sustainability from uh, people in the community, professors in the University of Arkansas. Uh, I guess just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what is sustainability? Sure. Um, I think sustainability can simply be boiled down to trying to do the most with what you got, um, being respectful of resources and future generations, and the formal definition is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the needs of future generations. No, and and resiliency, which is a... um, a characteristic of a sustainable system is the ability of a system to persist while its uh, surroundings and drivers are changing and to recover after catastrophic disruption. So I'm the executive director of the University of Arkansas Resiliency Center, Mm -hmm. which is the umbrella organization for sustainability programs on on campus, including the Office for Sustainability, which Eric directs, and Uh, our academic program, which uh, Professor David Hyatt in the Walton College uh, is the chair of, as well as our research program, which is led by Greg Toma. Dr. Toma is in chemical engineering, so we're interdisciplinary by nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I think like most of the time when, I mean I'm probably guilty of this too, but when I think about the term sustainability, I really just think about recycling. Right. Wor- worst really thing common, you can right? do. Right. <laughs> oh, no. Worst thing you can like do. <laughs> um, well, I, I know it's much more nuanced now, um, but I think that's initially what I thought of, and I think a lot of students probably think think about that. So, like, if we were to really get into that term um, and kind of dissect mm-hmm. it a little bit, mm-hmm. what is sustainability besides recycling? As Eric indicated, it's the ability to to understand the resources we have mm-hmm. and understand the needs of future generations for those resources and to not foul our own nests, to not do things that make it bad for people today and impossible for people tomorrow. Okay. So the reason recycling comes to mind is because it's the, the most common circular economy that most of us are aware of. The notion that uh, back in the 70s and 80s when most states had bottle loss and you could go along the road or, uh, and pick up a Pepsi bottle or Coke bottle and get 10 cents for it at the local uh, grocery store, that's the that was sort of the introduction of, of circular economies to mm-hmm. folks that things had a life after use right. as opposed to a single stream or single use process where it's extracted manufactured distributed consumed and then disposed of and then goes into the ground in a landfill so that's why people associate it with recycling the challenge is that because it's such a simple image it's the wrong image for a number of reasons not the least of which most of the plastics that we use for re- for most of our consumer product packaged goods are not fundamentally recyclable mm-hmm. they're not economical to recycle or they're technically not even feasible to recycle because of the degradation of the product during its use phase mm-hmm. and so the this the myth of recycling really is destructive to overall sustainability it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it for certain things right then there's a complex issue of glass probably the single most recyclable thing because glass is just heated silica or crystals basically or heated silica and extruded the problem and so it's very easy to recycle it's very energy intensive it's not particularly cost effective to recycle it but the challenge of it is it gets broken and it's sharp and the people who have to handle it get cut Mm -hmm. and it gets mixed into other waste streams and it's hard it's rocks in a and a bag of paper and it damages sorting equipment and so glass is really really difficult to manage from recycling so the, what we need to think about from a sustainability perspective are what are the things that impact the indicators we care about most mm. everyone cares about greenhouse gas emissions if mm. you're a sentient human being you care about greenhouse gas emissions mm. they are a, a scientifically demonstrated impact on the on future generations ability to prosper so how do we 
reduce our impacts from climate change. And recycling is one tool in that toolbox, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a recycling. Oftentimes, is kind of a last ditch effort. Um, the the so both Marty Mal Dr. Marty Matlock and myself, we have a lot of background in life cycle assessment. So quantifying the environmental impacts of a product throughout its entire life cycle or supply right. chain. Supply chain should resonate with the Walton College business folks. Mm -hmm. um, and recycling is that is that last step, the, the consumer use phase, and then you have the consumer disposal. And that's the recycling piece of the pie. And that's usually a small sliver of that big pie of greenhouse gas emissions throughout the life cycle of that product. So really, uh, we, we like to focus on opportunities to, um, to reduce or remove emissions before they start. And on campus, some of the programs that we focus on are um, transportation systems, um, biodiversity, so how we're managing our landscape here on campus, creating places for um, fl fl flora and fauna, as well as um, waste systems are one of them, our composting systems, as well as our procurement systems on campus. Uh, also our um, water systems and our energy systems, energy systems align with buildings and, and how we're how we're trying to minimize our, our carbon footprint associated with buildings because the majority of our carbon footprint is coming from buildings on campus. So if I could ask, so the Office of Sustainability, the office that you work at and direct here at the University of Arkansas mm -hmm. is about the University of Arkansas's footprint and like all the things that kind of fall under that umbrella. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so the Office for Sustainability, so Eric Bowles, director of the Office for Sustainability, kind of my, my task is... Um, quantifying the environmental footprint of the University of mm -hmm. Arkansas and then finding ways to reduce it, as well as communicating that out to national organizations or international organizations and connecting with our student body to um, communicate some of those impacts to them. Whereas uh, Dr. Marty Matlock and the Resiliency Center, I think they, they have a different focus, so I'll let yeah. him tell you about that. So the Office of Sustainability is campus is a laboratory, yep. as Eric indicated. So he has a, a, he has a number of interns, paid interns, working with him, undergraduates from across campus, including the Walton College, uh, who work through uh, very explicit and complex data collection and data analysis systems. The Resiliency Center is a research-focused initiative. We're hosted by the Faye Jones School of Architecture and Design, so that means that we have uh, but we're co-administered by the uh, Walton College as well as the College of Engineering. So we have, and, and frankly, every college on campus works with us. We have 37 affiliated faculty. Uh, we generally have between three and four million dollars a year of extramural funded research addressing life cycle issues and food and ag supply chains, as well as community uh, challenges and designs and resiliency and flooding and water resources. So we, we cover a broad spectrum. Uh, close partnerships with the Community Design Center in the Walton College, I mean in the, the uh, Faye Jones School is an example of a part of our uh, collaborative nature. Uh, we, we move people beyond their discipline comfort zone into transdisciplinary to metadisciplinary thinking, understanding that th the world is very complex, interconnected, and we really don't know much about it. So we start to learn about it together across disciplines bringing our discipline language and models to these very complex challenges. Challenges like climate change and challenges like aging populations and right. things that are inevitable that aren't going to change. They're coming right now mm -hmm. and we are not re reacting, responding, preparing for them. So the, our role as an academic research institution is to provide the tools for decision makers to make better science informed decisions. Can you give us an example of like what that might look like with like an individual an individual or, or like community. an individual department or community or like sure what Let's, does that relationship look like with you and a different another department on campus in terms of our research work uh faculty members we, uh, are interested in so we have faculty members in ag economics and, and agribusiness and faculty members in biology and faculty members in philosophy who are interested in, in a common set of challenges say the challenge of of uh, food security in northwest arkansas or in in the u.s in general uh, so we start addressing the sources of food insecurity collectively, and we understand that there are uh, hierarchical, political, historical, right. ethnic, cultural, and geographic drivers of those challenges. And then there are contemporary 
challenges, for example, demographic shifts, uh, immigrant populations who are disenfranchised from the standard support systems, etc. And then there are institutional challenges, and so we start dissecting all of that together. What the Resiliency Center provides is a place to convene and to, cl and to garner resources to tackle those problems. As academics, we saw problems a project at a time. So, and those projects are funded generally from sources outside the university. We are uh, very um, opportunistic in our resource uh, uh, acquisition. So we go where the money is because that's where society says mm -hmm. the problems are within our framework of expertise. So we help prepare competent and competitive teams to address these complex challenges. And we've been very successful mm -hmm. from USDA National Science Foundation. Uh, National Endowments for the Arts, other organizations that are uh, bringing very competitive money to support faculty members here. What we support are students. We support graduate student research, undergraduate student interns, and that's that creates next generation scholars as well. So that's how we uh, create this ecosystem of exploration on our campus uh, with this sort of diversity of thinking. I guess uh, for our student listeners out there, um, a lot of people have heard in the past that you know recycling is what you can do to help or mm -hmm. stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about what students can do to really um, impact sustainability and really mm -hmm. make a positive impact on the earth? Yeah, I, I think some some other things you can do in your in your daily life are um, how, how you choose to commute to and from work or or the grocery store or your friend's house. You know, think about options. Anything other than driving a car by yourself, that's kind of the worst, and everything else, whether it be transit or walking or carpooling or biking, those are all good options. So transportation is one thing that comes to mind. Another one is um, get involved in your community, just volunteer with local nonprofits that are doing cool things. There's countless, I won't even try to start to list those, but there's countless opportunities there. Um, as well as um, your uh, your dietary choices. I think eating a little bit lower on the food chain is an opportunity to mm -hmm. reduce your environmental footprint. Um, e eating close, eating closer to the sun, I think is how I heard Dr. Murray Matlock phrase yep. it the other day. But, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, but, yeah kind of lower on the food chain or closer to the sun is oftentimes a way to uh, reduce your environmental footprint. Um, I want to get hung up on things like taking shorter showers or um so also you know and and you said recycling but um but really the big opportunities rather than focusing on recycling your plastic bottle is bring a reusable water bottle to school and just or bring your reusable coffee cup to the local coffee shop our coffee shops on campus most all of them give you a discount if you're bringing your own cup um as as so it's it, and and i like those opportunities where we both save money and um, cut some environmental footprint. I agree. Our, we have been conditioned to make choices in sustainability really at post-consumer levels. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? The consumers aren't the ones who generate the waste that causes the problem. It's the consumer packaged good companies and their distribution systems that generate the waste that cause the problems. So we need to avoid the waste in the first place. And so that's what the consumers can do, students can do, is avoid the waste and insist on own, on uh, packaging that doesn't create the waste. Hyper-packaging of materials is incredibly destructive to the environment. That plastic equals petrochemicals extracted from the earth. That equals pollution in the atmosphere and in the water. And then ultimately in the ocean because that's where that plastic ultimately goes and then back into our livers as microplastics and nanoplastics. So uh, we have, uh, if, if you're, when you get to recycling, it's almost too late. Right. Uh, that it's not too late. We should recycle what we can, but we ought to not have that much to recycle to begin with. If your recycle bin at the end of every week is full, you got to ask what you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, if your trash bin is full, you're really doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And here's the real, real secret: it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you, we continue to throw away forty percent of it after we buy it. Yeah, yeah. Minimize I mean, food waste. We could, yeah. we That's could get one. rid of all meat in our diet. It wouldn't matter as long as we throw away forty percent of the bean-based, yeah. soybean-based stuff we we buy and right. consume. It just doesn't matter. So as as long as we're wasting food, and we waste food uh, prodigiously in this culture, and it's just it's a it's a moral violation of anything that is right or good because of the effort and resources taken to produce that food and because of the fact that in Northwest Arkansas, 25% of our children are food insecure. 
Uh, we have a great food recovery program. We have in, in Northwest Arkansas. If you want to, and on campus, and Razor, on campus. Razorback Food Recovery, reach out to them at the Volunteer Action Center. I know they're looking to get more uh, leaders right now. Um, yep, you can sign up to have one of their positions for the whole semester. The fact that we are landfilling organic waste is a wasted is a lost opportunity for uh, for preventing methane emissions and for that last stage of, of food waste, recovering it as a soil amendment. We should be uh, composting it. The city of Fayetteville and the university under Eric's guidance uh, uh, implemented a pilot to evaluate the feasibility. It's costly, but it works. It's, it costs money because it's a new waste stream that we currently don't have. It's easier to, it's easier to dig a hole and bury stuff. I've come to the point, though, where digging a hole and burying certain things is probably not a bad idea. I'm at a point now where I'm wondering if it's even worth recycling plastics mm. because of the failed market system for recycling of plastics, which ultimately the sort of the, the faux recycling we engage in because we have to, which ends up collecting it, and then it goes into the same waste bin as all of our other stuff, or at worst, it gets shipped uh, to the Southeast Asia where it's dumped offshore because there's no market for it. So it's dumped, someone pays to ship it off of, out of a port in LA and then it gets dumped in the ocean halfway across because there's no place to put it. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, if you, I've walked on the coast of the South China Sea uh, from Mal Southeast Malaysia and you can't take a step without stepping onto plastic. Not one step. It is absolute landfill of plastic on the coast, on the beach. Um, and the, the ecological impact of that is dramatic on the oceans. So uh, we do need a, uh, a we need a rethinking completely of our of our plastic supply chain, mm. and the impact and responsibilities of our consumer packaged good companies is pretty dramatic, and the retailers who um, market those products. I think you know that's a lot. It's like a little bit overwhelming sometimes. I mean, I know these things, right? But like when you hear them listed, it's just like, oh God, there's there's too much, what can I do? But I think for students, um, you've mentioned a couple of things that I think are important to point out. One, you said someone in philosophy, supply chain, retail, all these different fields. And I'm wondering um, if we're thinking about like the prevention stage before things get to that recycling stage, how do students even begin to think about incorporating sustainability in whatever field that they might be in like what do you like where do you start to think about incorporating these things into um whatever career field like is there a place for sustainability Absolutely. in all majors or? that's that's one of the most the wonderful opportunities of this way of thinking and one of the challenges it is ubiquitous it it does not it's not bounded by any discipline mm -hmm. it's a very human challenge if you if you feel overwhelmed with the challenges, go to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals webpage and look up the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and then pick two that you think you want to focus on. Hmm. And those are, are cover everything from the whole spectrum from ending hunger to ensuring uh, uh, prosperous and safe cities, and to uh, uh, equal work uh, equal rights in workplaces, to uh, women's education, to uh, to protecting life on land and life in the sea. So it, it's the spectrum of challenges humanity faces, but it's a nice categorized approach. And, and just pick one or two that you think, all right, that's the thing I care about and that my discipline can affect. Every discipline can affect many of those indicators, many of them. And you can affect them not only in your professional life, but in your personal life, as Eric has indicated, through uh, local, local uh, service to our communities. Do not get overwhelmed by the complexity of it. This is the human condition. Right. There are 7.4 billion of us on the planet today, approaching 10 billion before we start to, uh, our prosperity drives us uh, back down to about 6 billion, we hope, by 2200. So we're about ready to round the corner, uh, which is good. We've got to keep things together while we do that. But we have to develop new ways of thinking across every discipline. E.O. Wilson, the biologist from Harvard, says that there are, are four, eugen or, uh, four uh, uh, eusocial species, so species that, are, uh, that, that actually think, act, and plan for the next generation, not just for this generation. Three of those are insects and then humans. 
So uh, I mean, you think bees and ants and uh, termites and us. And so we actually plan for the next generation. We invest resources for others and we set them aside for others. We've kind of stopped doing that. So the simple thing you do is ask in your professional work, how can you make things better? How does your work make things better for children unborn? What rights do they have? To the child that's born today, what right does that child have to expect certain things in 15 years, 30 years? or when that child is raising their families, what resources, what conditions do they have a right to expect and help to bring that about. It's not a complex way of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, unfortunately, we find that most people don't start thinking that way to their grandparents. That's too late. You need to think about that when you're children, that you are part of this continuum of our species. And for our species to be prosperous, we have to plan for next generation's prosperity. It's not that complicated. Right. It's hard. But it's not that complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that um, perspective of stopping everything at the source and also like make sure that you're um, like you're thinking of future generations. One thing that I see um, that I've heard a lot about is a large uh, impact of affecting sustainability is from the company perspective, right? They're the ones who are creating like tons of waste, everything like that, um, especially in Southeast Asia. So what is something that can be done, uh, whether it's like legal or anything like that, that helps give an incentive to companies that, I mean, I know some of them are doing it already, like implementing sustainable practices, things like that. But what is a way to really incentivize them to start looking at this, like we really need to do something, we need to do it now? Well, I think a, a challenge that, that businesses face are, um, or that society faces is society's kind of picking up the bill for a lot of those negative externalities that that corporations can cause on on the environmental front and so society society's kind of picking up that bill and in terms of carbon footprint they the the consensus from the scientific community is that um, every metric ton of carbon dioxide emitted is worth uh, fifty dollars so or it causes fifty dollars of damage to society and right now those companies don't have to pay anything for that. And so the companies with, um, with a small carbon footprint don't get the competitive advantage that they probably deserve. They're not playing a fair game. So some, some companies are polluting a lot, have a big carbon footprint, they don't have to pay anything for it. Some companies don't have a big carbon footprint, they don't get to, the, the best they can do is use it as a marketing tool, really. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not, there's not, you know, you might have that triple bottom line, but you don't have that bottom bottom line. And so I, th I think how we can level the playing field, which is what Canada just rolled out is um, a fee and dividend system. So you often, you may have heard of it as a carbon tax, that's a similar policy, but a fee and dividend where you actually have, um, have those corporations pay a price per metric ton of carbon dioxide that their company is producing. And so what it does is it just kind of, and, and that money ends up going back into, um, that, that money at the end of the year just gets split between all the taxpayers of that, um, of, of Canada currently. But if we did something like that in the US and um, the Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a group that uh, partners with the Waltham College of Business quite often, but the Citizens Climate Lobby is a bipartisan group that's promoting climate policies like that and I think um, I think you have to have something like that to really level the playing field a little bit and and then and what's nice is it's technology neutral so it's not saying it's not saying um, this product is good and that product is bad it's just saying hey continue to do whatever it is you want to do you just have to kind of you just have to cover that cost to society and and we're going to take that money and put it back into society society's going to start getting that money back they've been covering the bill for the previous a couple thousand years and now and now you're gonna to have to start paying for that pollution and and the companies that that don't create as much pollution are gonna have a real competitive advantage at that point you know there will be a, a formal incentive uh, what, what do you think dr. Matlock I agree the the, the challenge that supply chain uh, retailers in particular the folks who engage in and uh, distributing and, and selling things to consumers have is rep is risk to reputation reputation yeah. yeah so reputational risks associated with doing bad things this uh, social media has uh, amplified this risk because things come out of nowhere and uh, many of our uh, consumer packaged good companies are now paranoid about 
uh, about these sort of uh, events just blowing up in social media and suddenly they lose market share. You think this is not a, a, a significant driver of decision-making in the boardroom? Uh, ask uh, Chipotle how that goes. Or Volkswagen. Or, uh, you know, we, we go through this whole list of, yeah. uh, and when I teach the sustainability minor course, my section in decision-making sustainability minor, I just throw logos up on the wall of the last six months of companies who have smacked their face against social media uh, <laughs> embarrassment because of stupid decisions they made right. that have these consequences, whether it's a Delta uh, security person dragging a, a little old lady off of an airplane. Uh, you know, th we, we know what these things are. So they don't want to have those. The risk of those, um, of, that's risk to the reputation. There's also the risk of, of harm to consumers from their products. So safety, security, and stability of their supply chain as well. So they're all tied together. And so now, uh, and of course, our uh, Walmart, one of our leading partners in our sustainability initiatives in the supply chain has discovered that very, a very hard way 10 years ago what happens if you don't pay attention to your supply chain, if you just trust that things are going to be manufactured in a safe and secure way, mm -hmm. but you don't verify that, in fact, you could be selling products that harm your consumers. And so that's uh, um, one of the former CEOs of Walmart famously said, it's bad for business to sell products that kill your customers. Mm -hmm. um, it's just bad for <laughs> business, so don't do it. And, he said, uh, and so that means it's make sure, nice. and he said that, of course, as a bit of snark because right. that, that, but just really what they're saying is we want to make sure we sell safe secure stable products that are of high value all that means that they have to understand what where the products are coming from how they're being manufactured and what the consequences are nike got into this in a bad way as well as several clothing manufacturers in the 90s with child uh, with slave labor and and uh, sweatshops and it just keeps rolling up um, organic cotton was discovered to have slave labor in Afghan in, in Kazakhstan as mm -hmm. and Pakistan where it predominantly came from. So you choose organic cotton versus uh, modern technology cotton. Uh, well, one of them may have less of a carbon footprint, but the other one uses slave labor. Right. So mm -hmm. consumers shouldn't have to make those choices. Right. Uh, those choices should be made by the consumer packaged good companies, mm -hmm. and they are. And the the decision most of them have taken is that they will take the responsibility to make sure the consumer can feel good about their product. That's a hefty responsibility. And it means they cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that that palm oil that they're putting in all their products, it's a ubiquitous fat con or a supplementer for many products, is destroying critical habitat for orangutans in Southeast Asia. And it's, I mean, we've lost 60% of the habitat that that incredible species depends on one species and I, and I don't think we can rely on the consumer to make those connections it's so hard as a consumer to look at you know when you're in the grocery store looking at the products on the shelf they don't you don't get to you don't get to to take a glimpse into what all has happened to get that product. It's not you, like a list that's like, this kills orangutans. Yeah, <laughs> you know. That'd well, be great, that one. <laughs> I, I, I participated in a National Academy of Sciences uh, workshop on eco-labeling. Oh, and their okay. term was, we are now, this was four years ago, and, there's, there, and the, the concern was the, the consumer has 798 at that time consumer-facing labels associated with sustainability four years ago they've amplified three times over that so over 2,000 labels that mm -hmm. associated with sustainability it's eco babble no one can make sense of it right. it's absolute and, and it's also it's an intrinsically competitive value system you should care more about dolphins than you do about uh, <laughs> greenhouse gases you know well right. yeah a lot of its trade-offs and so like the putting that back the onus back on the manufacturer of the products to communicate the values and the cost of these products is really the critical part we have of course uh, as part of the university of arkansas and arizona state university the sustainability consortium which mm -hmm. is a consumer package goods supporting mm -hmm. uh, uh, university partnership to create indicators for each of these categories of products and uh, walton college and john johnson have been central in bringing that to fruition as a way to simplify that decision-making process at the uh, supply chain level. Uh, we've helped with life cycle assessment to help answer the questions about competitive impacts. Is it better to do this or that? 
Um, the IPCC released a report last week on agriculture and the impacts of agriculture on climate change. Incredibly powerful report. We use 40% of our surface for agricultural production. We all eat a couple of thousand calories a day, or kilocalories technically. So that means, of course, seven and a quarter billion people eating 2,000 kilocalories a day is going to have an impact on the planet. If we look at what impact that is and where it's coming from, it's, it's a significant amount of that, is, a proportion of that is coming from meat. Mm -hmm. So the takeaway message from many folks was meat is bad. The challenge, again, as we said earlier, is that taking meat out of that doesn't solve the problem as long as we waste 40% of it. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter. Focusing on the problem where the problem is. And the other challenge that dr drives me batty is that we focus on these, uh, these perennially distracting issues, organic versus GMO, right. meat versus meatless, instead of focusing on the foundation issues that we can change. Mm -hmm. We can change what we drive. We can change how much we drive we probably can reduce the amount of calories we consume in the global north to a point, but there's a certain biological demand for calories you can't mitigate, you can't change, you're gonna to have to eat. And so attacking the food system, when again, we have this, we have a number of problems in the food system, but we really are have a challenge with how we're gonna produce enough kil uh, calories for 10 billion people without eating the whole planet. Um, attacking the food system is relatively distracting compared to looking at power grid systems and transportation. Mm -hmm. Those are our two big things we can fix. We could have uh, by 2030 a green grid in the United States, 100% green grid in the United States. It would involve nuclear power as well, but it would be non-greenhouse gas emitting. We could have a climate neutral power grid in the United States in, in 11 years if we had the political will to do it. And it would create jobs and it would reduce pollution for other things and it would it would reduce cost of energy because it's cheaper to produce energy with wind and solar mm -hmm. and nuclear than it is digging stuff up out of the ground and burning it. But we have no political will to do that. Right. And part of the reason we don't have a political will to do it is because there's always somebody somewhere who's against it. Right. And that's the person who gets the microphone. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's always got to be 99 people say yes, one person says no, no gets the microphone. Right. And so we have a, a, a problem with our journalism has a problem with understanding how to deal with, uh, with conflict versus naysaying. Mm -hmm. they, they equate them. Right. So in that respect, like how, how do we fix that? How, how do we get the people who um, either are against or not on board with, uh, they don't realize that this is an issue. How do we change their minds and how do we make this um, better? We tell our story more effectively. We can complain yeah. all we want that people don't understand this because we don't communicate very well. But then we also have to move away from a social media system, which is a gotcha-based, uh, inflame every every emotion-based, uh, clickbait-type system, which I, I'm, um, there are certain parts of social media, like podcasts, which are incredibly powerful. <laughs> there are certain other parts of social media, and I'll call them out by name, Twitter and Facebook, which are bathroom walls for society. <laughs> <laughs> they are civilizations. <laughs> They're the nastiest places to put anything. I would never put a picture of my child on a bathroom wall. <laughs> I do not know why people do this. I don't know why people do this. It is and it is destructive beyond words because a couple of uh, of of completely socially um, they're going to come right on it, right? No, like, that's what I'm thinking no, of now. Like, that's right. This is what people do. They're going to come right on that photo of your child. This is, that's what Facebook is. That's what they. <laughs> that's what the trolls do. And these are usually government-driven trolls from, uh, from, from, uh, from enemy states right. who are trying to inflame uh, anger amongst our society. And it's worked. So I am I am deeply concerned about that. So I don't engage in any of that social media, and I consider it. I consider the guys who developed that, and there were guys who developed that technology to be exploiters of social weakness. And there's a special place in whatever comes next for them. <laughs> um, that's my attitude towards them, right, uh, because right. they're billionaires, and may they may they drown in their coinage. Uh, <laughs> too often, too often we get in, um, topics of sustainability intertwined with politics, and it really, um, you know, everybody. I think everybody, red, white, blue, um, green, neon, orange, you know, you all, uh, we all want to, um, you know, we all want to breathe clean air and we all want clean water, 
you know, no one wants a Flint, Michigan. We all want we, we all want to live in a healthy, clean environment and we want to have a planet that is inhabitable for future generations. So we all want that when you boil it down to basic um, you know, kind of point by point, I think we can we can all kind of we, we can it's a lot of points of agreement. So it's it's unfortunate that often gets um, tied into politics, and that politicization is scientists' fault for not uh, not articulating these issues in ways that are understood and the values of the people who are mm -hmm. in, who who matter. I work with the farming community very closely. And when I talk about climate change, I talk about energy use efficiency mm -hmm. and nitrogen use efficiency, two things that save them money and that they care about. And then when I say, and by the way, that reduces greenhouse gas emissions, which isn't that good, and the, and the soil represents our best possible uh, sort of global uh, reservoir for atmospheric carbon. Uh, and so agricultural producers can be a solution to our climate change challenge. Our our Farmers get excited and they get engaged. They want to do good. They don't. It does not help to work with a, a community. For example, I doubt that I'll get any money from Mark Zuckerberg after <laughs> this particular interview. It doesn't help to that glowing endorsement. It doesn't. It doesn't help. But well, that's what we do. We have that sort of a screen against our farmers, and we go to the farmers and say, "Why don't you work with us to make better decisions?" And our farmers say, "No, you just told me I was a scum of the earth." And I was too stupid to make good decisions. Why should I work with you? We've changed that dialogue. And the University of Arkansas and my res resiliency center, and working with Eric and others, we've changed that dialogue around the, the world with the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, the Field to Market Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, Stewardship Index for Specialty Crops, Poultry, Pork, Soybeans, Corn, Cotton. We've changed that because we've helped develop common metrics, common frameworks, common strategies to have global outcomes. Global outcomes of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, improving water quality, reducing soil loss, improving the health and quality of the animals so we improve the efficiency of conversion for feed and food and other proteins, other uh, milk and eggs, the other things we get from animals. So all of this is a part of our common experience in human engagement. We can be more civil um, in spite of my uh, inflammatory claims about social media we 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 have to be careful about how we engage with each other right. in respectful and meaningful ways mm. because we all want the same thing uh, when it comes down to it we have different ways of getting there and sometimes it takes different ways to get there and economics can be a really good tool for uh, driving the right decisions so I know on on campus we're moving towards things like all LED lighting systems in in all of our buildings and it's not necessarily because it's I mean we, the the greenhouse gas the the reduced greenhouse gas emissions are just the icing on the cake we're mostly doing it because it saves money it saves money they last longer less maintenance it's just so it's just a win-win and you know and, and going back to that kind of how sometimes it get, unfortunately gets intertwined in politics well whether you're red or blue they all like green so opportunities to um, promote solutions that can be cost-effective like uh, Dr. Matlock said earlier wind energy and solar energy are cost-effective at this point they are they are cost competitive and um, we, we just need to uh, I think a lot of what we're doing at this point is is just it's easier to keep doing what we're doing because it's what we've been doing <laughs> unfortunately yeah. so so we need so I think one way that students to go back to one of your earlier questions, one way that students can get involved is also by um, poking their leadership and poking. Um, don't, don't be afraid to be a squeaky wheel sometimes, yeah. um, and maybe use that that bathroom wall of the internet to um, to drive some change <laughs> potentially. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that because I mean you hear a lot that sustainable practices are more expensive, right? That's not true, mm -hmm. and from what I've what you've explained here today. That is just not true. So I think using a reusable water bottle rather than buying a bottle of water every time is exactly. going to save you money exactly. for sure. So yeah. it's a win-win. Walking to campus, r taking a bus is going to save you money. The average car, the, the AAA says the average car costs $10,000 a year mm -hmm. in the U.S. And it so. is one of the, uh, next to housing, it's one of the largest investments of folks uh, in, in their lives, in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. And if you are making minimum wage or just above, if you're in the lower quadrant of, of our distribution of economic, of income in Arkansas or anywhere else, that transportation cost is crippling. Right. 
you're one car breakdown away from losing your job mm -hmm. and cars break down mm -hmm. unless it's an electric car which will last it's which has 17 moving parts it's an exaggeration for for he, he's a recent adopter and now he's all in like <laughs> he's all in it's like like the, like the guy who quit smoking and so absolutely uh, so, so yeah i bought a nissan leaf and it is my i drove it here today it is my favorite car i've got an extension cord in my garage i plug in it every night and it is, it's 240 mile range and charges so i can drive to tulsa and back in my nissan leaf and not have to stop at a gas station but if this, let's think about these consequences, too, of our decisions. For example, you mentioned bottled water, mm -hmm. and it is silly in northwest Arkansas to drink bottled water because we have such a good water supply with Beaver Water District and, and Beaver Lake. However, yeah. bottled water has been an incredible asset for having access to clean, mm -hmm. packaged water, easy to distribute during periods of crisis. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if yeah. without that bottled water industry, we wouldn't have that. And the other advantage of that is because people have a choice to spend a buck eighty on something and get for free, they do that instead of buying a sugary a water with sugar and color and caffeine added to it. Mm -hmm. The cola industry is having a major crisis of identity because no one wants that stuff anymore. Yeah. That is that is increasing the health of our of our communities dramatically. It's reducing uh, both dental as well as uh, physiological impacts of sugar intake, mm -hmm. uh, and so my kids don't like sodas. Yeah, I don't like sodas. Same. Yeah. So <laughs> your, your generation yeah. don't. Yeah, it's funny. So that's because you have choices too. Right. When all you can get out of the out of the vending machine is a Mountain Dew, I love Mountain Dew because boy, it's got a kick. Um, <laughs> if that's all you can get, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can also get a bottle of water. Then you have a choice. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that we don't, that's where, it, uh, where we have to never say either or. What we have to say is we have a spectrum of choices. Every choice has a consequence. We have to be informed enough to make the right choices and understand if you make the wrong choice today, it's not a crisis. Make a better choice tomorrow and then we get better together. I had like, you know, we were, we kind of talked earlier about how students can get involved, you know, and you mentioned, um, you said something about it not being specific to discipline, which I, I really liked. Um, if students that are entering the college, we have a lot of freshmen who are about to join us uh, in just a couple of days. Um, if students are interested in this, I know there's a sustainability minor. That Can is you kind of talk to us about that? And then maybe talk to us too about, maybe if they don't want to minor in sustainability, but like is there like an elective class or something they can take sure. to kind of find out more? The sustainability minor has uh, three required courses, sustainability 1103, which is introduction to sustainability, 120, or 2103, which is applications, and 4103, SUST 4103, which is the uh, project-driven capstone course. All three of those courses are required. Everything else are electives, typically from within the discipline of the student. Hmm. So, or, so that helps to guide them to a minor with, with only those three courses and in many cases, those three courses count as technical electives in their in their major. Mm -hmm. So, in many many disciplines on campus, can, students can get the minor without any new classes. Mm -hmm. It just helps uh, sort of discipline their. Uh, it gives them choices around their discipline that create a pathway to the minor uh, that makes sense. But if uh, we only have about sixty percent of the students to seventy percent of the students who take the the first course who go on to get the minor. Many students take it just because they, they like the elective and they want to learn more, and we encourage that. Yeah. Uh, the, the minor is easy enough for most students that we think it's a good credential, and we've students who have left with a degree in uh, international relations with the sustainability minor have been more competitive, for example, mm -hmm. than students without the minor because it gives, uh, it gives you a tag that you can, and content. The fact is uh, students, when they interview for a job, can talk about the difference in metrics and indicators and how uh, how they affect the reputation of an institution and how decisions are made because that's the sort of information we give them. Right. This, these are real tangible skills that we give our students on how to improve systems and it's very systems thinking oriented. So uh, take the one of those classes. We don't presume to have uh, the market on sustainability. Virtually every discipline on our campus, and I would say every discipline on our campus touches sustainability, some are swimming in it. And so virtually every class you take in your discipline will have elements of it, draw them out. 
be curious with talk to your instructor and try to expand those out a little bit mm. uh, and if you're if you have any questions email sustain at university at uark.edu yeah sustain. or um dr dr hyatt in the walton college of business is the advisor to the sustainability minor so reach out to dr hyatt but but the sustain email is the easy one to remember and yep. you and if you send the email there we'll get it to dr yeah hyatt. we'll connect you with dr hyatt but dr usually the first step for students wanting to take the sustainability minor is to sit down with dr hyatt and talk about um what what they hope to achieve and and they kind of lay out a path yeah and so it's it's a it's one of the, the uh, strategies that we've been very successful with on our campus at creating this uh, universal pathway to enhancing our experience uh, for all of our students. We also have a graduate certificate in, in sustainability, which is, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very, similarly, it only has one required course, um, and that's in the Walton College, Sustainable Business. Um, and it is, uh, all the other courses, all the other electives typically align with the major of the student, uh, but it gives you a certificate, which is also powerful. We have, we're at the point now where we have people uh, enrolling in just their, for just the certificate. They don't want to get a graduate degree. They just want the certificate, mm -hmm. which is kind of a novel thing. So yeah. we're excited about that. Well, I definitely think that uh, there have been some great ideas discussed yeah, here. And I think it really cleared up what is sustainability and what students and others, everyone can do to help. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah. I think just like uh, we're kind of setting the tone and, and uh, opening the conversation up for the rest of the season about how people can get involved, what it might mean in different disciplines. So I think this is a really great overview. Um, I just have one kind of last question. Uh, I'm just curious, I wanna learn a little bit more about you individually. So can you tell us like maybe a little bit of like, a little bit of your story? Like how did you, how did you come to care about sustainability? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think I had parents that always kind of cared, to tell you the truth. I, I was lucky enough to have parents that were kind of engaged in um, taking me on hikes and stuff. I, I think I just spent a lot of time outside in my youth. And then in high school, I got into um, rock climbing and whitewater kayaking and kind of, kind of that those outdoor sports and was just seeing beautiful places. And, and as you spend more time in beautiful outdoor places, you think, wow, we should this is a great resource. We should protect this. We should uh, give more people and future generations the opportunity to see things like this. And then that, I feel like that quickly leads you down a road of, well, what are we doing in our society to, um, to keep the natural places natural? So I guess I started on the conservation side, but then I went on to college and pursued biological engineering here at the University of Arkansas and got my undergrad and my master's in biological engineering here. And then that led me to kind of food, energy, water systems and allowed me to um, bring some some technical expertise to that just that pure passion. And next thing I knew it. Um, I started a consulting company doing sustainability consulting for businesses and did all kinds of random projects with that, did that for a few years. And then this job opened as director of sustainability at, or director of the office for sustainability at the University of Arkansas. And I put my name in the hat and got it. And it's a really fun position. I've been here for the last three and a half years. And um, I think my claim to fame is I ride my bicycle almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> Eric has been an incredible leader, <laughs> and, and he's assembled a really uh, amazing team at the university in the Office of Sustainability, too. With uh, We have Dane Effling, who's a joint at, uh, appointment with the city of Fayetteville and the University of Arkansas as our bicycle coordinator. Uh, Todd Hansen's our administrative assistant, so with three staff, we're doing an incredible amount of work and a number of interns. So Eric's been a great leader. It's a fun role. And come visit us sometime. Stop by the, the Sustainability House. It's just immediately east of the Walton College of Business on Harmon Avenue. Mrs. Buchanan's little house. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so the way I came to this as an 18-year-old in Oklahoma, growing up in rural Oklahoma with uh, high school educated parents, uh, was from a, a more of a, from a, a faith-based approach. Uh, I approached my academic career early on wanting to... Uh, taking seriously the message of the Gospels that, that we should feed the hungry, that we should clothe the poor, that we should help the, 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 the sick and infirmed, and taking that seriously in my career. And so focusing on feeding the hungry was where I started. Uh, Norman Borlaug was one of my heroes. And through that sort of humanitarian-based approach, understanding, trying to understand the challenges of how we 
uh, where human suffering comes from, why we as a species aren't, pro aren't collectively prosperous, why some are very prosperous and most are not, and the inequity that's, uh, that's associated with that and how faith-based systems play into that. I, what emerged was the role of science and technology as wedded with sociology and uh, philosophy and political science mm -hmm. in trying to solve these problems. They're very complex problems and they're all, uh, Norman Borlaug was the, the, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970, father of the Green Revolution. Uh, he was my mentor and he told me, so I was lucky enough to be mentored by a Nobel mm -hmm. laureate. So he told me back in 1984 when I was graduating with my undergraduate degree in agronomy that hunger today is not an agronomic problem, it's an economic problem. Um, so that was in 84. Well, that yeah. was another 30 years ago. So I've uh, since, uh, and, and I took that seriously. So if you want to actually reduce hunger, you've got to reduce the other social ills that drive uh, these, these challenges. So uh, ecological engineering uh, was one way I approached that to understand how we live on the planet and how we use the resources of the planet to create um, to, uh, prosperous resource-based economies. Mm -hmm. Economic systems are social systems, social constructs. Mm -hmm. They demand uh, they demand stable, reliable political systems. So you can see right away we've got policies, political science, economists, social science, ethicists, religious leaders, yeah. social leaders, political leaders, and then they're the scientists. And that's what it takes to solve these problems. And guess what? None of those folks work together anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I am. That's uh, the University of Arkansas Resiliency Center is explicitly was explicitly created to provide a place for those resource ideas to come together to try to solve these complex, difficult problems that are as ubiquitous in Fayetteville as they are in Abu Dhabi or in uh, uh, Kuala Lumpur. Pick a place on the planet. Right. Now, um, we the Resiliency Center is located on. on uh, the Fayetteville Square next to the Community Design Center and the Prior Center. We will, we will occupy our offices, brand new remodeled office next week. So uh, I'll also extend an invitation if you want to come by the Resiliency Center on one prior place, uh, the big brick building on the square. We're on the second floor next to the Community Design Center. Happy to chat with you. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys cool. so much for coming and chatting with yeah, us thank today. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Ryan and Jesse. Keep up the good work.